Welcome back to the Ridley Institute podcast. My name is Sam Fordiker. I am your host, and today I'm joined by Abigail Favalli, professor at, uh, at the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, and author of a juicy and profoundly insightful book on some of the most disorientating issues of our day. It's been published recently by Ignatius Press, and it's entitled The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory. Uh, Abigail, thanks for joining me. Welcome. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. I wish I had put juicy in the subtitle. Yeah. Like a juicy Christian theory. Well, you can always, when the, when the, uh, when the, when the next edition comes out, uh, you can, uh, you can just footnote me on that. I'm, I'm very okay. happy. Absolutely. <laughs> Did I get Favali right? Is it Favali? Yeah, you got it. You were, you were spot on. Yeah. Well, I wanted to really nail that. Okay. You can, as someone whose last name is uh, Forniker, the directions in which people run with that uh, is, is utterly bewildering. So I pay pay close attention to last name. All right. So look, I, I don't really know what is exactly in store for us. I, I, I don't believe in the omnicompetent podcast host. So I've, I've had a close read of the genesis of gender and I've, um, and I've really just begun to think afresh uh, on the other side of it through some really basic uh, questions. And I'm going to be very happy on this episode to decrease in order that you might increase. <laughs> okay. okay. So, so I've got a, I've got a coffee here. Do you, do you have a, do you have a, do you have a drink? Can, can, I have a coffee as well. I didn't know if I needed to send uh, our intern out from the illustrious Ridley podcast studio to bring you a tea or a coffee um, <laughs> <laughs> as long as you're comfortable. Okay. Uh, so, right. Abigail, we're focusing on your book, the Genesis of gender. It's um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it is at the same time profound, learned, all of those things. It's also very uh, accessible. It's um, it's an accessible introduction to some of these really highly charged and seemingly intractable uh, debates about things like sexuality, gender, the the meaning of sexed creatureliness, and uh, and 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 what Christ has to do with with any of this. Um, but you're your your book flows out of your story, so I wonder if we might just begin there. Would you would you just be uh, willing to kind of start us off by telling us a little bit about your about your story uh, as the kind of foundation for uh, for the work that you're doing here? Sure. Um, so I grew up an evangelical Protestant in the West, uh, the Western United States, and when I went to college, I became really interested in questions about womanhood. I, and it was it was very personal. It wasn't just intellectual. Like I wanted to understand what my purpose was as a woman, what my calling was as a woman, and especially in light of of Christianity. Um, and that's when I first encountered two things that I think would become influential in my own spiritual and intellectual journey. And the first was Christian feminism. So I began to read feminist theology and feminist philosophy. And at first, I think that strengthened my faith um, and I still was very much an evangelical and that I took scripture seriously and as authoritative but I had a renewed desire to interpret scripture correctly um, mm. in a way that affirms the dignity of of women especially in relation to men but eventually I think the more I immersed myself in feminist voices that were either not Christian or suspicious of Christianity over time that shifted and I also adopted a suspicious attitude toward Christianity, toward God, toward the Bible. And so eventually I think my immersion in feminism became kind of a wall between myself and, and my faith. Mm. 
so that's kind of one one thing that happened in college. Another thing that happened is that I um, began to worship in a small Anglican church, and actually in the philosophy professor's living rooms. Like it was a really small little house church, and that was my first exposure to things like the Eucharist, um, to the saints, to a more liturgical form of worship, to the idea of sacraments, and that opened up a whole new world of Christianity for me, um, and. For a while, I was kind of, I was going down these paths that kind of aligned for a while, but then eventually there was sort of a fork in the road, I think, after I graduated from college and I took the feminist fork. Mm. Uh, and I went on into graduate work in the UK and I studied women's writing and feminist theory and gender theory. And um, in that decade of my 20s, when I was doing doctoral work and then began teaching at the university level, my Christian my Christianity became very nominal. I would say I still considered myself a Christian, but it was, it was much more in, in a postmodern sensibility. Like Christianity is, you know, all we have are meta narratives. All we have are these big stories that try to to give us a sense of meaning in our lives. And I think Christianity is the most beautiful and compelling one on offer. But I, I, what I think I had cut myself off from was this idea, not just of human beings reaching out to God, but mm. God reaching down to us. Mm. So I think I had lost sight of a self-revealing God, mm. um, and I didn't have a clear sense of, of authority in my life. I, I had basically decided, like I was the one who got to decide which parts of the Bible were valuable or not, or which parts of Christianity were valuable or not. Um, I wasn't beholden to anyone beyond myself. And so mm. that kind of faith, I think, ultimately can't bring about any conversion, right? Because it, it closes mm. yourself off to grace, to, mm. to God's active work in your life um and so then i to make a really long story short had this escalating spiritual crisis that became a mother and that sent me into kind of a feminist crisis because that that upended a lot of the neat and tidy feminist beliefs i had about the value of autonomy and mm. um you know, the question, you know, issues like abortion. And I was also, my first child was a boy. So I became really interested in the kinds of challenges that boys face in our society as well. And mm. um, and I think in that moment of, or that, that time of vulnerability and openness, um, I had a, a pretty intense reconversion to Christianity um, within a Catholic context. So I became Catholic and that really, changed my worldview in pretty <laughs> profound ways. And so then I thought, well, what do I do now? You know, I've carved out this career for myself as this academic feminist, and now so many of my beliefs have changed. Um, you know, if I just wasted my time in academia, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. But now I've kind of come around to the point where I'm, I'm still writing about these things. I'm still very interested in the question of woman. And um, the debates about gender in our culture. And so now I'm trying to approach those from a deeply Christian worldview, but also with this insider knowledge of the discipline of gender studies and feminist studies. So my my hope in that book was to begin to articulate some of the, the deeper worldview issues that are at work in these conversations and to help other Christians navigate the terrain. It is, so one of the things, so I, mentioned to you before we started recording that my wife Gina and I, we've been reading this out loud and really salutary in so many ways, partially because it has provided, I mean, it, because of your background, 
you've provided new frameworks for us to navigate issues that you know we had sort of gotten ourselves into ruts. This is how we think about you know X, Y, or Z, and um, and so a, you know a good example would just be by by learning more about the kind of history of the feminist movement uh, movements. Mm-hmm. We were able to kind of come away with a much more sophisticated and and mappable understanding of. Um, this, the various and sometimes clashing convictions that that you find in that in that world. Um, so I can't remember. Maybe this is somewhere in chapters one or two. Um, you talk about uh, JP two Pope John Paul II, who called for a new feminism, this authentically Christian feminism. Which and this is the phrase that I that I that I underlined. Um, a, a, an authentically Christian feminism, which, in your words, reclaims women's dignity and does not simply replicate masculine modes of domination. Um, so whatever that authentic Christian feminism might look like, presumably it's going to depart in key ways from what you call the the gender paradigm. So uh, I, want, I wonder, can you, can you kind of introduce us to, the, to what you're calling the gender paradigm? Help us understand what's going on here and what are the... What are the kind of key claims being being urged? Sure. So I I use the word paradigm because a paradigm is basically an interpretive framework. It's a way of understanding ourselves and the world because we do have experiences of things, but those experiences don't come to us as just raw data, right? We have we have these lenses through which we see things. And so the gender paradigm is a framework, an interpretive framework that's emerged and become of ascendant in our culture, I think. Um, over the past few decades, it's kind of been subtly forming. And then I would say maybe since around maybe 2013-ish, 2014 has really kind of zoomed into the forefront. And within this paradigm, um, so there are some, this is fundamentally, either explicitly or implicitly a godless paradigm. So there isn't a sense of there being a creator of the world. And that means we aren't creatures. And that's almost the more important aspect of that because if to be a creature is to belong to something beyond yourself it is to not have complete autonomy or self-determination of your nature and your identity and um, so then the gender paradigm there isn't a creator and we aren't creatures Um, instead it is up to us. We are self-created beings, essentially. So in the in the gender paradigm, it is human beings who make meaning. It is human beings who create truth and knowledge and reality through words, through socialization. Um, and freedom is, the idea of freedom is pushing past limits, right? So in in Christianity and other, honestly, ancient philosophies, not just Christianity, there was much more of a sense of the good life is found in living in harmony with what is, living in harmony with reality. You see that in Taoism, you see that in Stoicism, you see that in Christianity as well. So we we have this belonging to the created order, and we have our place within that created order and a calling from God within that order. Um, but in the gender paradigm, there is no God, there is no there is no calling, and freedom is is transcending our limits rather than learning to live within them. Um, so when it comes to gender, within the gender paradigm, gender is very much separated from the body and from sexuality. So the importance of 
sex, as in biological sex, really recedes. So in the gender paradigm, almost any sex-related word or concept is absorbed by gender. And gender is presented as this kind of amorphous, socially constructed, but yet also innate force that we kind of come to realize. And then we have to bring reality in alignment with that. So we have to bring the body into alignment with that. So the gender paradigm doesn't see the body as having any intrinsic meaning, but rather meaning must be made or imposed onto the body. So that might be one key difference, I think, between the Christian paradigm and the the gender paradigm is, you know, for a Christian understanding, we receive meaning from God and from creation. There's this givenness to the world, whereas for in the gender paradigm, we impose meaning onto things. We impose meaning onto the body. We impose meaning onto the world. So those are just those little sketch, I guess, of, of the difference. Um, but what's important is that now... When we talk about men and women, boys and girls, anything related to sex or what is increasingly now just called gender, um, all of that is implicitly understood within the context of this this gender paradigm. So that's become the primary interpretive framework um, through which we now are taught to see ourselves and understand our experiences. And so I think it's really important for especially Christians to become aware of that framework that's operating in the background um, and and not to I think that awareness can also allow us to not simply adopt it without realizing it but also to better understand those who are very much operating within that framework and understanding themselves within that framework I mean two questions I guess that that or observations maybe you can tell me if I'm getting this right or wrong I mean I guess the first one is there is a there really is a kind of gulf and so I'm just simplifying here pretty radically. There, there's there's a gulf between these concepts of sex and gender, right? The the latter. So with with gender, you you hinted just there, and you 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 know you unpack this in the book. You've got multiple competing ideas going on here. Um, what we mean by gender is often unclear, so people feel like, well. People can often feel, frankly, quite stupid. Like they've not managed to keep up. I don't know what the language to use is, and so on. And 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 you point out, well, actually, that's because the language is kept malleable, right? Yes. It's constantly fluid. And I guess maybe that leads to the second point. And then I'd love your response. I mean, it seems like a, and this would not be obvious to most people. Um, but from the standpoint in which you are coming at it, and I'm coming at it from a kind of you know, a Christ perspective. Uh, it's a, it seems like a profoundly violent view. It's pre-relationship, and in a way, it's anti-relationship. Uh, you've got you you quote the the ever quotable Wendell Berry, and you say there's there's no such thing as autonomy, just uh, dependence that is more or less responsible, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And isn't the idea just etymologically right there in responsibility of um, uh, of being in some way related to others, put in place over against others. Um, so, I, yeah, I suppose I suppose what I'm saying is that in in the gender paradigm, it seems that actually we've we're 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 encountering really a quite I'm not overtly, um, 
but in its philosophical theological roots, like quite a violent worldview. This, it's a zero sum game, and that comes to be played out on the on the battlefield of language. Right, it's kept malleable in order that we might, you know, shape the terrain of the real. Does that does that make sense? Am, am I? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I think you're right. So I I also think that this this gender paradigm is in part it's part of the larger story of the technological conquest of nature that's been ongoing, you know, and really ramped up in the 20th century. And so now that the part of nature that is being conquered is our human nature and our sexuate nature, our sexual nature as male and female. So that's now a terrain of, of conquest and reshaping and oftentimes violent in a literal way, right? So part of the process of, in, in the gender paradigm, part of the process of becoming oneself is to do violence to the body in order for the true true self to emerge or to be fully expressed. Um, so it's important to realize that these that these medical the medicalized model, although the idea behind it is that this will alleviate psychological suffering or suicidality, physiologically, there's nothing wrong with the body. So these medical treatments aren't treating a physiological condition. In fact, sometimes they create them, right? They create um, medical problems rather than than solve them. So there is a sense that that is that is a kind of violence to oneself. It's almost like socially sanctioned self harm. Um, and there have been, you know, some detransitioners who've really said that explicitly that this is within the gender paradigm and the medicalized model that emerges from that um, self care, self harm has been rebranded as self care. I think I found this almost unbearably difficult to read. The chapter Artifice, I, I nearly had to stop reading. You quote from Scott Nugent, whose case is almost too painful to read, but if, if I can just read uh, Scott's account of the of the gender transition of the of the transitioning process. Uh, During my own transition, I had seven surgeries. I also had a massive pulmonary embolism, a helicopter life flight ride, an emergency ambulance ride, a stress-induced heart attack, sepsis, a 17-month recurring infection due to using the wrong skin during a failed phalloplasty, 16 rounds of antibiotics, three weeks of daily IV antibiotics, the loss of all my hair, only partially successful arm reconstructive surgery, permanent lung and heart damage, a cut bladder, insomnia-induced hallucinations, oh, and the frequent loss of consciousness due to pain from the hair on the inside of my urethra. All this led to a form of PTSD that has made me a prisoner in my apartment for a year. Between me and my insurance company, medical expenses exceeded $900,000. You know, and that's not the only example that kind of experience that you that you bring out. I mean, what was novel, uh, eye-opening to me, and and so deeply startling is that this this the stakes of transitioning are not only being misrepresented, um, but they're being misrepresented on the basis of um, such a shockingly low, you know, quantity and, and degree of, <laughs> of of medical research that we would never think that conscionable in any other area of life. If you think you come in for your ADHD, you're going to get a battery of tests or whatever, you know. 
um, not so. So maybe we could talk a little bit about about that more later. But a couple of more fundamental things, I think, before we before we go before we go on. So the doctrine of creation enters into your account early on, and I mean, as you as you as you know, you, the, the doctrine of creation it's not just about the origin of things; it's about what things are at any given moment of their existence, right? Not just origins, but ontology. Um, so. What does the biblical account of creation offer us in, in, our, in our contemporary cultural context? Um, and, it, and in what ways do the distinctive glories of the biblical account seem more evident to you in light of the alternatives? So Genesis tells us so much. The first three chapters of Genesis, these are short they're so short that they're like these deep pools of water. You can just dive and swim and swim for ages. So one thing you'll notice, even just without even carefully reading the text, but just scanning your eyes over it, is that in Genesis 1 and also in Genesis 3, the one time that the text breaks out into song or into verse is when God creates sexual difference in, in human beings. So it's not just the creation of human beings, it's the it's the the accent or the the highlight is even on the sexual differentiation of human beings. So the fact that we're male and female is something that's hugely significant in the Genesis texts. And it's part of the way that we image God. Okay, so in Genesis one, the the creation of humankind is this culmination, but then it's also there's this accent on male and female, he created them. And then Genesis 2 and 3 has the same, the same emphasis, but told in a different way. And here it's, it's a, a kind of fun, even comical story at times where, you know, this first human being is created and it's not quite right because he's alone, right? He's, and so you know, God kind of makes these other creatures and Adam tries to name them and, but he can't, you know, it's a, it's a funny story. Like, Oh, here's a monkey. Like, Oh, that's not quite right. Like that's not, that's not going to be the counterpart that he needs. So it's only when the woman is created that we see, first of all, the words male and female first appear in the text. So that's, that's interesting. And that's something that so John Paul II, when he, when, and when he reads Genesis, he he argues that that first human being is not yet sexually differentiated. And that's what's incomplete about him because, and then when he goes to sleep, it's almost like they're both recreated as male and female. So this original human kind of gives birth to these two new modalities of being human, these two new ways of being human. And those modalities of being human um, are important because they have with between them this intrinsic capacity for interpersonal communion that's life-giving. And that is a very profound image of who God is, right? Because God is this interpersonal Trinitarian communion who is the source of all life and love. And so our sexual difference is actually an icon of that. Um, and so there's just so, I don't know if you, and I have also taught, you know, ancient literature for years. And if you you can't find another ancient creation narrative that puts sexual difference in such a positive and meaningful light. 
then. So for Genesis, so for Christians, it's not just about like, well, the Bible says it's Adam and Eve, you know, and end of story. Like it's actually, no, there's so much more about what is being said here about how sexual difference is part of how our bodies themselves point toward our need for communion that is ultimately fulfilled in God. So there, yeah, and that, that's, that's what's being forgotten in our time, I think, is that not only is sexual difference real, it's part of the created order, it's part of the natural order that, you know, a lot of any, any mammalian species, certainly, but any sexually reproducing species is, is going to have sexual difference. But more than that, it's not just real, but it also has this sacramental meaning because it's a physical sign that reveals a divine reality. Yeah, yeah. I was you, you got me thinking. Um, I was I was fielding a question about some about biblical language in Genesis one at the same time as I was reading your your book. So I had these two kind of different emphases coming together. On the one hand, I was answering this question. I was draw, drawing connections for for the person asking between male, you know, between the male and female, um, as you say, modalities, right? That, that, um, that dyad, I guess. Um, but also those, those parallels of heaven and earth, of water and dry land. Um, and I think Janet Soskis makes this point in, in somewhere that what we're seeing is a picture of fruition through reciprocity, right? And, um, uh, th- the fruitfulness of otherness, if you like. Yes. Um, the, the point that, that I so enjoyed, and, and actually you really just lifted it out beautifully there, is there's also this kind of playfulness that comes mm-hmm. across in the account. And that is not always, that's not always picked up, like the, <laughs> right. the joy of the creator in doing this. And um, and I think sometimes that's that's why, you know, you you sort of reference the the attitude that says, you know, it's Adam and Eve, over and done. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes you can, you can you can do injustice to the to the truth by um, you know you, you you can sort of uh, type the words out if you like but but lack the heart of the truth yes. <laughs> and um, and I, I think it's absolutely brilliant that you brought that out especially because you know in, in the book you you compare the Genesis narrative to the Enuma Elish the um, Babylonian isn't it creation yeah uh, creation story which is horrific um, I, yeah, <laughs> listener. Uh, Go 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 and read the Anuma Elish E N. It's a wild ride. U M A. That's right, right, right. Um, go go and read it. Um, I hadn't read it since seminary, and just going back through it again, I, f- I forgot how you know completely monstrous it is, and you don't you really don't appreciate that how um, how 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 violent um, one's view of the world can be. Uh, when when is it where you haven't had your kind of your eyes open to the joy of God in in creation? Um, anyhow, I th- I, th- I think what I what I'd like to do now, um, Abigail, is maybe kind of move on to your discussion of the history of feminism. I mean, in a very hundred thousand foot way. Um, and my what's motivating me here is all right. So here's what surprised me, and I and I don't want to um, I don't I don't want to <laughs> for, foreclose on what you might say, but but what seriously surprised me in your exposition of, of you know the the history of the of the, of the feminist move, movements was this dis ease with womanhood. 
with being a woman. Yes. It was entirely new to me and made sense out of a lot and also introduced a whole new gamut of questions. So I wonder if kind of from that angle, dis-ease, discomfort, discomfiture mm-hmm. with womanhood, you could kind of introduce us to to the kind right. of movers and shakers in feminist thought. Right. So I think I don't think that theme is quite as prominent in first wave feminism, which was basically the movement for women's suffrage or the, the right for women to vote. But you really see it come in, I think, first through Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, which then greatly influences the second wave of feminism. And another thing that's also happening at that time is the birth control movement by Margaret Sanger. So if you look at Margaret Sanger's writings and Simone de Beauvoir's writings, the way they depict femaleness is very negative. Um, So Margaret Sanger talks about and she basically scapegoats the female body for like everything that's wrong with the world. It's really, it's really kind of amazing how she's like poverty, tyranny, like it's all women's fault because women have babies. Like every tyrant has a mother because she didn't, you know, control her, her fertility enough. That's why, you know, we have such problems in the world. And so, you know, her writing, she was pretty eugenicist. So she writes, she writes about how there are all these like useless human beings like weeds clogging the earth and so our solution is not to care for those human beings but actually to restrict women's fertility so she's scapegoating the female body and then Simone de Beauvoir similarly she writes about because her concept of freedom that she's working with is very much this like to be human is to be to become a human is to transcend the brute facts of your existence. And because women gestate, because women lactate, they're more, in her words, enslaved to the species. And so she very much seems to imply, she she takes on this kind of masculine ideal or she idealizes masculinity and downgrades femininity. And you can even tell that in the very last line of her like 800 page book about women the last line is like, let us now reclaim our brotherhood, you know, fraternity. So it's, and she knew what she was doing, right? That wasn't an accident. Um, but basically women become free by joining the brotherhood of men, essentially. And through, how do we do that? Through abortion, through contraception, and through, you know, kind of socialism, which would then somehow free women up from raising children. Um, so then you have the second wave of feminism in the 70s that really, I think adopts this value system. So seeing f- seeing femaleness as something negative, something even pathological, especially female fertility is pathological, and that the model of freedom we're given is that women, in order to be free, need to function physiologically as much like men as possible. And how do we do that? We use contraception, and then when that fails, we use abortion. Right. So I think as soon as the feminist movement became allied with the pro-abortion movement, which initially was very much a male run movement, like the National Abortion Rights League, NARAL, that was all found founded by men, run by men. But they made a brilliant move in recruiting the National Organization for Women to to an alliance in the second wave, because as soon as as soon as abortion became framed as a women's rights issue, you know, then that I think enabled its its success. So since then, <laughs> there's you know, feminist thought has had a dis a discomfort. There's this ironic discomfort with femaleness, and there's also this ironic resistance to having any clear or stable definition of what a woman is. So feminist thought is very anti-essentialist. So they want to deflect any stable understanding of woman, um, which 
for maybe a good reason, because at times in history, certain definitions of woman have been very misogynist, like, you know, women are less rational than men, so we don't need to educate them, right? So that essentialist understanding of woman was not helpful. But then I think feminist thought kind of throws the baby out with the bathwater. And so if you have a feminist movement that's sole reason of being is defending women, but then is reluctant to say what a woman is, then that in part has led us to, I think, where we are now, which is um, almost this this um, reductio ad absurdum kind of extension of that. So that the first thing that you might, uh, and again, we might, I might be jumping the gun a little bit here, but first, you know, for someone who is experiencing what you know what is often called gender dysphoria that the, the what they're the first thing that they're sort of summoned to do is not to question the stereotypes that they may or may not sort of match up to is not the right it's not the right phrase but you know it, they might not represent the conventional stereotypes but they're not they're not summoned to question the stereotypes that in yes. fact might be manipulative or um or unhelpful they're they're invited to question their their own sort of bodily integrity and act against it. Right, because as soon as as soon as the ground of what man and woman mean is not the body, then it only becomes it has to be stereotypes, right? There's or it can just be literally anything, which there are some versions of gender that are because now we have this you know fast forward a couple decades we now have this understanding of gender in gender identity theory, which basically says gender is a self-perception, yourself, your feeling of being a man or a woman. So it's grounded in a feeling. Well, what does it mean to feel like a woman? Any attempt to articulate that will have to appeal to think, to some to some kind of stereotype that, you know, might might be somewhat true in general for a lot of women, but not universally true. Um, whereas what is universally true about women is that women are human beings who have the potential to gestate life within themselves. Now, that potential might never be actualized. There are women who are infertile. There are premenopausal women. There are pre, you know, men's, you know, before like, there are prepubescent women or girls. But they all share in that procreative potential, that innate procreative potential. Even the concept of infertility points back to it, because if you're a woman who's infertile, it's because there's something preventing your innate potential of pregnancy from being actualized. And that's so even women who've had hysterectomies like that's so that definition is stable and universal. But if you dismiss that, if you dismiss the body and how the body is organized according to procreative potential, then you have to ground it in something that is is going to be much more based in stereotype. Um, and and I think any understanding that's just any identity category that's based on a feeling is necessarily unstable and malleable, like you said. That's one reason why gender is just constantly changing what it even means, because there are human beings have a lot of feelings, right? And so if that's what gender is, is this like deep, deep, deep seated feeling of oneself, then the change will only continue. So where does the, where does the idea of, isn't it, isn't it Judith Butler that um, we, we associate, I mean, is, isn't, 
it, isn't it to her that we owe the phrase gender performativity, this idea? Yes. Can, you, can you tell us a little bit about, so I, I, I want to eventually get back to the kind of the idea of the manipulation of language, but maybe we can kind of start with Butler again here, just to give people a little bit of a genealogy of the movement so they sure. kind of understand where the ideas came from. So with, with, with Butler, you've kind of, you've mentioned first and second wave. Um, where are we when we get to, to Judith Butler? Right. So Judith Butler would be probably third wave feminism. That's kind of how I articulate it anyway. But so in second wave feminism, there's an understanding of sex and gender as sex is biological and gender refers to the social norms or expressions of sex that are constructed by society. So sex is biology, gender is a social construct. That's kind of the, the standard second wave feminist understanding. Now, Judith Butler comes along and she's the first person to really make the argument that Okay, not only is gender a social construct, but sex itself, this idea that we think is grounded in reality, this this tendency to categorize human beings as either male or female, is itself a social construct. So she basically, that's, so she folds everything into gender, right? And so I think that's her huge, her, she folds everything into gender, and gender is this social construction. Now, what's interesting is that gender identity theory, which I was talking about as this idea that gender is a innate self-perception, is different from what Judith Butler argues, right? Because the, the gender identity narrative is kind of essentialist, that there is this innate sense of self that's so profoundly real that you can realize at a young age, it might actually be at odds with how you've been socialized, and it's so profoundly real and unchangeable that you have to go through drastic medical procedures in order to live a, a good life. Now, that's very different from Judith Butler's understanding of gender as this internalized, socially compelled performance. So Judith Butler is like anti-essentialist. She's anti-realist. Like everything is constructed through language. But I think the connection or how one led to the other is that her folding of everything into gender that is this linguistic construct then created this kind of postmodern juggernaut, really, of what gender is. Um, and then that that became almost re-essentialized in gender identity theory, but it's still separate from the body. So I think Judith Butler is responsible, or not responsible or something like I'm blaming her, but I think she's it's her work is what I think is part of what has sidelined sex, the importance of sex in, in grounding what it means to be man or woman. Interesting. So if I so if I can if I can kind of spit that back at you, um, so what 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 Butler does is folds biological sex all into into this concept of gender, right? Which is about sort of uh, it, it this concept in which we have there's profound fluidity, like everything is up for grabs. Everything is there's a, a, a real relativism, the anti-realism, anti-essentialism. Um, and what and what you're saying actually is it, ironically, in some ways, it creates the uh, framework, like the, the the necessary but not sufficient conditions, we might say, but within which this sort of the gender paradigm emerges, which is this way of, sorry, I'm not sure if I'm using that in the right way, but now we're we're at this moment at any rate, uh, in which sort of the opposite thing is happening, and we've we've been saying with Butler, uh, cult, you know, our culture has kind of been saying with Butler, yeah, okay, w everything is about gender, 
um, we're anti-realist, you know, three hurrahs for anti-essentialism. Um, but now we're at a moment where we're saying, I'm, I'm a little boy, I'm seven, I love pink, I love to play with dolls, therefore I must really be a girl, and if I want it badly enough I should go through, I don't, I don't mean to sound at, at all uncompassionate or anything about this, I'm just trying to give an example. You're talking about the narrative, you're talking about the framework, yeah. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, at, and, so, and in that sense, this, that's, what, that's what we're talking about, the stereotypes, that's where they yeah. come back in with a vengeance um, and, actually get, and actually get reified, like made real. Yes, exactly. Um, Interesting. Exactly. Okay. All right. And then language. So just to get back to the language thing again, and we're going to, we're going to talk about why parents of nine-year-olds need to care about this. I mean, uh, um, it, uh, please stick with us, <laughs> stick with us folks. <laughs> the language question is important around this. Language is kept malleable. Now, why is that? The, the language about gender that's, that's kind of constantly evolving. Um, and I think, I, sorry if I've already said this in, uh, in the course of this conversation, but you know many of us feel silly because you know we're we're not on top of we're not on top of the language. It feels like new categories are being, um, are you know we're 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 hearing about new things at a rate that we we just can't keep up with. Now, now why is that something that we need to be aware of? Right. So. If you, okay, so let's put our little butler hats on again. So if you're, if you're a butlerian postmodernist and you think all of reality is linguistically and socially constructed, then one key strategy of creating a sort of reality that you think is better is to use language, right? So language, now I think there's something that's true about this. There's something that postmodernist gets right because language does profoundly shape our perception of reality. I mean, you can look to all the totalitarian regimes or like dystopian novels and, you know, Big Brothers uses language to control people to change their perception of themselves. Like Brave New World, you know, words like mother are now considered obscene. So you can you can use language to change someone's perception of reality, but you know, as a Christian, I would say reality pushes back. There still is the real. And so from a Christian perspective, our language is true insofar as it corresponds with reality or names what is real. Whereas for the kind of queer theorist or the the gender nominalist, our language does our our language creates what is perceived to be real. And so I think there's an intentional strategy there. So that's one that's one reason to be that's one reason to to be um, thoughtful about how you use language. Another reason, I mean, you point out, wow, there's so many more categories than there used to be, and that's another uh, that's another sign I think that points toward this paradoxical turn that things have taken. Because at least for Judith Butler, her whole project was disrupting categorization and disrupting the idea of norms. But instead, so she's displaced the a uh, quite the, she's displaced the categories of sex of male, female, man, woman, but instead of just fluidity and malleability, we have we we have this proliferation of new categories that are then intensely policed and new norms that are intensely policed. Um, so that's that's something that's ironic to me. So I think what's happening is that you have this anti-realism that dethrones the reality of sexual difference. And then in its place, you have this new realism that's asserting a concept of gender identity using very realist claims like trans women are women 
sex is a spectrum. Those are realist claims. Those are making a claim about what is real and what is true. But those claims depend on anti-realism. So that's, so I would say it's important to use reality-based language um, in, yeah, in a nutshell, uh, because I think in the gender paradigm, um, that is not what's happening. So instead of using reality-based language, instead what you have is linguistic-based realities. This sort of brings me to the to the edge of the question about teleology. <laughs> um, it's an it's an important concept in your writing. Um, can we just talk about introduce that concept? I mean, there are some really important philosophical theological concepts that you make very accessible. Um, I think the potency uh, and actuality distinction would be one of those. Um, for, if you're wondering, if you're listening to this, you're like, what the heck is that? Well, go and read Abigail's book, okay? But, <laughs> but another, another, one is, another one is teleology. So maybe can we, we just talk, because I think, again, this is important. Can we talk just for a minute about what tele, teleology is? And then, again, why parents of nine-year-olds actually, you know, sh- should, should care? <laughs> right. Right. So I think teleology in, in kind of a more accessible way of talking about it is the idea that our nature indicates a purpose for which we're made. So there's, a, there's an end or purpose for which I am made. So this draws back to our earlier discussion about creation. So the Genesis narratives uh, narratives of creation, they don't just tell us our origin, they also tell us who we are and what we're made for. So our identity, or a better word I think is nature, our nature, who we are, is connected to what we're made for. Um, And so in a really simplistic way, you can kind of talk about the, you know, a fork, like the structure of a fork is made for a very particular end. It's made to like make it more easy to have little pieces of food and to eat them, right? Or a chair, and I'm sitting on a chair. Like there's a there's a clear design to a chair that is, is supposed to fit a different purpose or a specific purpose. And so then there's a question that gets more complex. Well, then what is the purpose or the telos of a human being? Um, and so Christian thought is deeply theological, but also just ancient philosophers like Aristotle had, you know, he had he was deeply theological in the way that he he talked about this concept of eudaimonia, so human beings are made for kind of doing humanness well. What does that look like? What does it mean to be like a fulfilled human being or a flourishing human being, so human flourishing? Um, and from a Christian understanding, our ultimate end is union with God, right? Union with the creator who made for us, who made us. So this, we are made for communion. We are made for something. But that that purpose, that fulfillment is connected to our nature. And so the gender paradigm is is anti-teleological. So it rejects the idea of both nature and and telos. So we don't have a stable nature and we're not made for anything in particular. And so all we have left is self-determination and the pursuit of of fulfilling our own desires. I, um, I, I'm just going to put a little plug here. I, I am going to get to talk with DC Schindler on his new book, Retrieving Freedom, in a, in a couple of months' time. And he talks in the book. I haven't gotten a chance to digest it thoroughly yet, um, so I don't want to misrepresent the argument. Uh, <laughs> but, but he talks about 
about the about the the Christian way of I mean you know we often hear about the kind of their Greek elements of thought and their Hebrew elements of thought and that's been done there are plenty of ways in which people have talked about that division and talked about it badly right um, but one of the points I think I'm right in saying that Schindler makes in this book again you know to be confirmed in a couple of months when I, when I speak with him is that the Hellenic or the Greek concept of nature matches up to the Hebrew concept on of, of kind of narrative, if you like, the kind of dynamism of. So, so in a sense, you have kind of person and nature uh, in in the Christian understanding, yes. kind of going together. And I I think and and again I, I I realize we're kind of getting a little bit tangential and a little bit um, sort of out there theological, but. Um, but I think it is. I think it is really important to recognize, as you as you say, we have an end. We use realist language not just because we care about the way that we speak, but because, um, you know, we're we're not out to police language, right? We're 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 out to live a like a good and fruitful and beautiful life that has been given to us to live, um, and we don't. And again, I don't want this to sound remotely polemical, but. Right. We would not want to implicate ourselves in a deviation from that fruitfulness because, I mean, I often, I often think, especially with pieces of scripture, you know, passages of scripture that we tend to think of. I mean, I, I think I'm going. I think I'm going to be able to preach one Peter chapter three, the beginning, uh, in a few weeks. And I've spoken with people who have said, "Oh, what are you going to do with that? That's that's tough stuff." And it's like, no, it's no, actually, that's. That's really beautiful. Um, as are other places that we tend to think of as being controversial passages because of the teaching on gender. Um, the the beauty is overlooked because of, well, for all sorts of reasons that we're, that we're discussing. All right, I'm going to close the parenthesis, and I want to talk about contraception. Ah, oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Do it. So, <laughs> so in the Protestant world, you, you know, we we tend to think of opposition. To, by the way, the goal here is not to sort of convince anybody to 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 go out and you know f- flush the. That's not what I'm. I'm not. <laughs> I'm just. I'm, we're just having a conversation, okay? Um, you know, in the Protestant world, we tend to think of contraception, um, opposition to contraception, like as a. It's it's like it's that's a Catholic thing, right? It's like a <laughs> yeah. it's a distinctively Catholic thing. But contraception plays a major role in your argument, and and I and I think it ought to. It really belongs at uh, or or near the heart of a, of a of a conversation like this because it has to do with our telos uh, in, in these modalities of being human as as male or female. So contraception, you say on uh, I think it's page one hundred four. Contraception is a means by which we cultivate quote a consciousness of assumed sterility. So this is, we, we put the book down. My wife and I put the book down at this point and just had a great long conversation. Wow, so wh- cool. why does this idea, consciousness of assumed sterility, what, now why, why does that matter? What, what's wrong, Abigail, with assuming, st- with assumed sterility? Um, well, because babies happen. <laughs> that's, and a, then, that's a t-shirt <laughs> right. when, when babies happen in a culture of that has a consciousness of astu- assumed sterility then it, it tends to be women and children who bear the costs of that 
Um, so, yes, I do think this is an important, maybe, I would even say that maybe this is the most important influence to the development of the gender paradigm. Um, and that is that in our cultural imagination, we have disconnected sex from procreation. And that also means we've disconnected what we think, like the, our concept of woman and man, from procreative potential. That's that's just receded into the back of our minds. Now our fertility is this, it's this like optional, you know, switch we could turn on, right? Or it's this add-on. Um, we can unlock that, <laughs> you know, like if it's a video game or something, we can unlock that achievement, but it's not actually part of our part of our nature. And so I think that that reshaping of our cultural imagination of what it means to be a woman or a man, um, again, once you once you take that away from procreative potential, then it tends to be about things like appearance, roles, externalities. And that so what it means to be a woman is to look a certain way. It is to fulfill a particular social role. And so I think you see that in some religious conservative understandings of gender as well, where where the ta- the conversation about gender is never really theological or sacramental. It's all about, you know, like who is at home, who works outside the home, who does the dishes. Um and then you also see it in the kind of gender paradigm where to be a woman is to have this appearance of a woman. And if you have that appearance, then you are a woman, right? So it's the shift from an innate procreative potential being the ground of manhood and womanhood to external appearances and roles. So that's, that's I think, a, a big thing because our bodies are teleologically organized as male and female. And people, you know, proponents of the gender paradigm talk about biological, they they kind of fragment the concept of sex into all these like disparate features or characteristics, like a Mr. Potato Head doll or something. Well, you know, biological sex doesn't really exist. There's like, you've got chromosomes and genitalia and like blah, blah, blah. Oh, totally ignoring the fact that in 99.9% percent of human beings, those characteristic characteristics come arranged in a very particular way. So that totalizing organization of the sexed body is really downplayed and rejected and kind of brushed aside in the gender paradigm. Um, but it's true. Like our, I mean, I was just reading an article the other day about how female immune systems like from birth are different because they're already you know, organized. So like the immune system is preparing itself to be able to house this other organism, which you shouldn't normally wouldn't be able to do. (laughs) Um, So female immune systems are different, right? So it's sexual differences, really, it's, it's not just about external genitalia. It's not just about chromosomes. It's about the organization of the body as a whole. And so when we, when contraception became widespread, and we began to think about sex and procreation as as separate, separable, then that changed our concept of maleness and femaleness and manhood and womanhood and the teleological organization of our bodies and also the teleological nature of sex, right? And so I might get a little graphic here, but when you think about what the act of sex is, like it's it's two, re- two incomplete reproductive organ, or, organiz, organ systems 
connecting into one complete reproductive system. That's what's happening. That's what sex is, right? And so there's this unitive pleasurable function of sex. It it draws together, you know, it's that becoming one flesh, you know, as scripture talks about. But intrinsic to it is also this potential for new life. Um, so, and this is most explicit in, I think, the male body, right, where the the culmination of that sexual union is also the, the part where the, the life-giving seed is released, right? So, and if you think about that as Christians, I think you have to reckon with that teleological design of our bodies and sexual intercourse. Why would God have so intricately tied those things together if he meant for us or or wanted us or approved of us disentangling them? So I, yes, I think it has not been to our benefit ultimately. Certainly, I think for women, actually, I think women have been more harmed by this cultural forgetting than men. I think men have been let off the hook um, and our culture has adapted to more the norms of male sexuality that it's more like comfortable with promiscuity, not as into monogamy, right? Whereas in general, female sexuality is much, it's more monogamous and wanting stable, intimate partnerships. Um, so yeah, I think <laughs> that's kind of a long, my long kind of contraception ramble. You know, no, it's not, a, it's not a ramble. And I think the, the, probably the iconic picture for me, and I don't want to ruin anything. So there, there, there are no spoilers here. I just, if you've never read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, you ever read Lewis's Space Trilogy, Abigail? You no, know, I need to reread it because I reread it, I don't know, years ago. And I it's one of those things I'm like, I need to I need to go to it again. Again, I don't think I'm I don't think there are any spoilers here. But the end of that hideous strength is just about the best illustration. But if you're listening to this, don't jump to the end of that hideous strength. Don't <laughs> do it. Read from the beginning of Out of the Silent Planet. Go all the way and um and, and, and you'll understand, I, I think, what Abigail's talking about. You know, and also, b- before we move on, I, I can't remember if this is something that you said, Abigail, or if this is um, just a, a, a brilliant and insightful note that I wrote in the, in the marginalia. I'm sure it was you. The, the, no, maybe, and, maybe, yeah. And, it was, and there's a reason, and I can tell you I won't, but I, 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 there's a backstory to this, something that I've, um, I think, and. I think possibly something I heard from the the New Polity guys, a really provocative discussion of of abortion actually. And but with the with the pill, so I've been thinking about these about contraception and abortion kind of from the standpoint of sacraments for for a a liberal and I don't, by liberal I don't mean sort of you know politically liberal um I I I mean in in the kind of western sense of you know liberal society. Um there is a there is a, a sense in which the pill has a kind of it's treated almost with a kind of eucharistic reverence, right? Like mm. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna come and I'm going to I'm gonna I'm gonna take this thing into me, you know, ev- every day, right? And taking that pill, um, which is then going to in some way become an effective sign, which is going to integrate me into a reality which is larger than myself. Um, and which in some way is going to, um, yeah, it's going to, it's going to bring about that, which it signifies by incorporating me into a whole different order of being. Um, nobody thinks, you know, uh, very few people tend to think of contraception in those terms, but, 
um, I'm becoming a bigger and, and bigger proponent of sort of seeing all of life in some way as echoes of uh, of the gospel sacraments, and and that would be this would be an, a, a way in which I you sort of just from a Eucharistic standpoint start to say, wait a second, um, how how am I how am I treating this thing? Um, so I don't remember if I if I maybe I got that from those guys. Maybe I got that from you. Yeah, it's not from me. That's really interesting, though. I ha- I I am gonna mull over that. You know, it reminds me so another interesting thing with the contraception connection that. I didn't realize before researching this book was that the technology of developing the, the the pill was happened at the same decade that the concept of gender identity was first coined, and also when um, experimental treatments about cross-sex hormones began to be used. Because it's the same technology, the you know creating synthetic hormones to manipulate the normal physiology of the body for a specific purpose it's the same technology that's at the root of the birth control pill um, that's at the root of you know the cross-sex hormonal treatment for um, gender transition so it's that that was actually pretty fascinating to realize and and then to also realize that well you know through the normalization of contraception you know, female fertility has kind of been pathologized. And I think now we're seeing other normal physiological processes pathologized like puberty. And so I wonder if part of the reason why our culture doesn't seem to be that worried about dosing our children with synthetic hormones is that, well, we've been doing it for women for decades, you know? So it's really fascinating to see how many, in how many ways these things are are interrelated. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, in the scheme of things, we're still not that far out. Right. It will be exactly inter- right. Historically speaking, you know, yeah. this is right. And yeah. also, I don't think, you know, I also know a lot of Protestants who who have similar theological views and who don't use artificial contraception. And the alternative isn't this like quiverful, you know, yeah. to have too many babies, you know, not too many, I don't need to say that judgmentally, but in, in this, like, com- not having any sort of discernment about when to have children. Um, but there are, there's amazing fertility awareness methods, and there's amazing, like, femtech technology that exists now. Like, it's really great. I'm such a nerd about it. And so there are ways to thoughtfully and prayerfully discern the planning of one's family that don't require the use of of technology that separates that teleological connection. Um, so I think the difference in using fertility awareness methods where you, you know, track your fertility and then abstain when you're fertile if you're trying to avoid pregnancy is that, you know, contra- using contraception, you adapt your body, the nature of your body to your will, whereas using fertility awareness methods, you adapt your will to the nature of your body. And so that's the difference, I think. So um, family planning is not bad. But I think the it family planning that disrupts or tries to remove um, the question of, of procreation from sex itself, I think that's where, where things go awry. I wonder if maybe just a last question and then we can we can we can tie up. And that is, you know, I mean so so, so much of the argument of this book has to do with with the trans, the, the the various shapes and sort of amorphous character of the trans movement. And towards the end, and I'm not sure whether you did this, uh, maybe I was just primed to note the word, or or I'm not sure if you artfully 
um, use the word in a particular uh, moment, but the word transfiguration or transfiguring leapt off the page. And I thought, gosh, there's a book. <laughs> um, mm. Yeah, just as the framework for this question, uh, I, I'm thinking about the, what does it mean to be a person undergoing transfiguration, destined for transfiguration? Um, that, as a way, that's kind of the setup for the, for the question rather than the question itself. Right towards the end of the book, you talk about how the the way of the Christian is to be inducted into a, a new and different way of seeing. And I suppose this is, for, for me, where the, the idea of transfiguration comes in. Can you talk to us about this different way of seeing? You know, how does it take us out of the, the, the way of looking at our bodies that, you know, major on on reproof and repudiation and how does it bring us into a new way of seeing ourselves that that actually kind of as we've been talking about um, helps us to view our bodies as gifts well I mean a way of seeing that's when I say paradigm that's basically what I mean so the gender paradigm is a particular way of seeing oneself and the world and your body and identity and so the the way of the Christian way of seeing, or the Genesis paradigm, I guess, would be seeing the holistic order of reality of which we are a part. So we are not just self-determining individuals. We have a creator, and we're created for a specific purpose. And our body our bodies are meaningful and they're good their gifts, even their limits. Like this isn't just the idealized body as a gift. Like when you're, you know, 28 and you're at your peak, it's like, no, our, even when we're sick and we're ill or we're dying, the limits of our body, of our bodies are also part of teaching us that we are made for love and that we need love and that we, we require love. We, we aren't completely self-determining or self-sufficient. Um, so a different way of seeing is kind of a sacramental way of seeing. It's seeing all of reality, especially all of physical, physical, visible reality as part of God's self-revelation. So our bodies are part of God's self-revelation. Sexual difference is part of God's self-revelation. So if we mess with that or if we see that in a distorted way, it doesn't only distort how we view ourselves, it also distorts how we view God. Um, so... The transfiguration thing is really is really interesting. I mean, one thing I see in many ways, the gender paradigm and the genus paradigm are at odds. But one thing that I see that connects them are the longings, the desires, because I hear in like the, the gender paradigm is trying to answer very real and very good desires, the desire for belonging, the desire for the body to reveal the person. Um, the desire for conversion, for transformation, like that is the Christian story. Like you become a new self, like you take, you know, cast off the old man, put on the new man, right? But it takes those very good desires that can be only fulfilled through Christ and it bends them toward a false, a false fulfillment, really, um, toward a fulfillment that is always here and now in this life. And that is not through Christ, but through oneself and one own, one's own kind of autonomy. 
Abigail, for this conversation, we should probably draw a line here. I'm really grateful, uh, hugely excited about the book and really warmly commend it to you, good listener. But um, Abigail, thank you for, for, for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. This is a great conversation. You're, you, you're a good, very good um, interviewer. Well thank, well, thank you very much. <laughs> so, uh, I'll put that on my CV. <laughs> um, well, folks, uh, it's been really great to, to have you with us. If this has uh, provoked thoughts for you or questions, uh, again, I really do warmly commend Abigail's book to you, The Genesis of Gender, published this year. Uh, the Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory, published this year by Ignatius Press. Uh, do uh, do grab a copy. I think you'll find it uh, very, very helpful. Um, if this has prompted ideas about uh, other topics that you would like us to bite off, uh, do feel very welcome to email at uh, podcast at ridleyinstitute.org to suggest those. We've got a really solid lineup uh, for the remainder of the fall and into the new year, um, but love to hear your ideas. If you've enjoyed the conversation, leave a uh, review wherever you might be listening to this, hopefully a positive one. Uh, feel free to incorporate Abigail's comment that I am the world's best podcast host. Uh, that's perfectly fine. Um, over, the next, uh, over the next several weeks, we've got some really great conversations coming up. Um, uh, be a, an enormous privilege to host Michal O'Shiel, uh, the, uh, the great Irish poet who's published a, uh, a recent volume with Baylor University Press called Testament. As I mentioned, D.C. Schindler with his book Retrieving Freedom. Teresa Morgan at uh, Yale uh, Divinity uh, on her new book, The New Testament and the Theology of Trust, This Rich Trust with Oxford University Press. And of course, the new Parker Society will be back in action. Alice and Jake will be with me again to discuss the godly meditations and private prayers of the English reformer uh, John Bradford. So uh, that's all to come. In the meantime, great to be with you. Uh, my name is Sam Forniker, and you've been listening to the Ridley Institute podcast. <laughs>